Let me guess. You're playing your ball out of the wrong fairway again. Stop yelling four right after every shot and start playing the new Big Bertha B21 from Callaway. Because truth is, there's a ton of distance trapped inside your swing. You just need the technology of Big Bertha to unlock it. It's pretty simple. A straighter ball equals a longer ball. So Callaway built a whole family of Big Bertha drivers, irons, woods, and hybrids with a new formula for forgiveness. Big Bertha was designed to reduce side spin while generating an insane amount of ball speed, leading to straighter shots off the tee. That's how you unleash your inner distance. And Callaway made Big Bertha irons so forgiving you can practically hit them anywhere on the face and the ball just launches. No matter your swing, Big Bertha gives every shot more distance. Big Bertha is a full family of long, forgiving, and really easy-to-hit clubs. Say hello to the fairway again. Introduce yourself to the green, because this is distance any way you swing it. Unlock your inner distance today at callawaygolf.ca slash Big Bertha. Since the COVID-19 pandemic shut down many sectors in our economy, the federal government has been doling out cash to Canadians. The CERB, or Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, was meant to help people through a very unexpected bumpy ride. But the CERB has sparked renewed discussions about a universal basic income in Canada. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. I'm joined by National Post political reporter Stuart Thompson to talk about what a basic income would look like, who is pushing this idea, and what some of the potential pitfalls are. Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite shows. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Stuart, the idea of a guaranteed basic income is not a new one. In the past, it's kind of been confined to think tanks and left-wing politicians, as you pointed out in your article. But why are we talking about it so much right now? I guess there's two reasons, actually. One is that we're in the middle of a pandemic right now, and there was a variety of policies designed to alleviate the economic consequences of the lockdowns. And one of those was the CERB, the program that we're all aware of now that sends checks to people who can't work because of basically the economic shutdown that happened in the spring. That, in a lot of ways, is just like a basic income. That is something designed to make people not want to work, though. Like, we wanted to keep people at home and keep them out of public transit and out of the public square just to keep the virus under control. And the way to do that was to make sure people had some money to keep them going because they wouldn't be able to work. Mm -hmm. And so the premise is pretty similar to a basic income. And some people realize that. And it's just one of those policies that's always kind of rumbling around. And it just sort of became a discussion again. And then it has sort of come to the fore again because a few liberal MPs, they were kind of working independently, actually, and then it all kind of came together for them. They have sort of elevated the issue to the front of the liberal policy convention. And this was actually made one of the caucus's priorities. So the whole liberal caucus has decided that this will come to a floor vote at their party convention in November. So given the past votes on this, it's very likely that it gets passed and it's sort of deemed a priority for the party. What that actually means, though, is another question because, for example, they've passed motions on decriminalizing drugs, yeah, uh, all drugs. And it's sort of them just saying, hey, we care about this. The party then gets together to create an election platform, and it doesn't necessarily mean it'll be in that platform. It doesn't necessarily mean that it'll be one of the government's priorities at that time. 
How easy would it be to transition from the Canadian emergency response benefit to a full-time, seemingly permanent guaranteed income program? Is it just a matter of saying, okay, $2,000 a month, or would they have to kind of develop a new program that would indicate an income level, indicate the conditions under which you would receive it, who would receive it, and all of those things? So there's a bunch of different ways to do this, and the most likely way is sort of an income-tested payment that goes out to people who are below a certain threshold. So there was a pilot in Ontario for universal basic income that people could opt into. And if you were below the income threshold of 17000 per year, you qualified. And if you were a household, if you were a couple, and you were under $24,000, you qualified. That's a pretty common watermark. It's I, I think it's 75% of the poverty line, something along those lines. People tend to move it around to 75 or 85%. But that's kind of the premise that you would go with. The issue with that, though, is that the government would have to know your income. And the way that the government tends to know your income is by your previous year's tax filing. Yeah. So if you wanted to do a more dynamic system that wouldn't be just sort of a complicated mess and a real bureaucratic mess, you would pretty much have to revamp the entire CRA systems. And there's an economist actually out of Calgary, Lindsay Teds, who's written about this, and she's an expert on the tax system. And when you read her sort of explaining what would have to happen, you actually just start to get tired because it's so complicated. Like it's really, <laughs> it just sounds awful. So it sounds easy, you know, send a check to everyone. But once you start income testing, then it gets a little more complicated. When I start reading about the tax system in Canada, I just generally start to get tired <laughs> yeah, exactly. as it is. So you talk about it coming up at the Liberal Party's convention in November. How many MPs are pushing it or who are they and why were they trying to get this on the agenda? Yeah, there was a small group, about a half a dozen Liberal MPs who were sort of agitating for this. So one of them is Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. He's a Toronto MP. He is fairly left on the spectrum relative to most of his party. He is the kind of guy who tends to be pushing the party in that direction as much as he can. And he's kind of an interesting guy because he's willing to kind of criticize the governing party, which is extremely rare in our system. It's just something that doesn't really happen. If you go to the UK, where they have a lot more members of parliament than we do, there's just a lot more people who don't have career prospects in the government. They're doomed to be backbenchers, and they tend to be more critical. Mm -hmm. Erskine Smith strikes me as more of that kind of MP that, you know, I think he probably could have a future in the party if he wanted to, but I think he kind of sees this as his best way to get his issues on the agenda is making noise about them, bringing them up at the policy convention, criticizing the government when he has to, which he did on electoral reform, which is another issue that they kind of promised and then didn't deliver on. And he was one of the ringleaders of this. That movement kind of elevated the issue in caucus. Caucus gets to vote on what the priority floor vote issues are at the convention. And I spoke to him last week, and he sounded kind of actually surprised that it was made the number one priority. But I think that just kind of goes to show you that everyone's thinking about this kind of stuff. And I think they're kind of eager for a debate on it. Where's the prime minister at with the idea? Has he voiced support for the idea of a UBI in the past? Or is he kind of wishy-washy on the whole thing? He is kind of an enigma on this. And actually, my colleague, John Iveson, the National Post columnist, he was kind of pouring through Christia Freeland's public comments. She talks a lot about redistributing wealth, but 
we can't find anywhere that she really seems to be hugely in favor of a universal basic income. Maybe it's out there and we just didn't come across it, but it's certainly not something that she's made a priority to talk about. The prime minister was actually asked about this going into the uh, cabinet retreat, and he just kind of veered away from the issue as quickly as he could. I think the line right now is they're taking the COVID-19 pandemic seriously, and that's what they're focused on. I think they have an ambitious agenda coming up, which will be battling the pandemic. But also, I think they see this as an opportunity to go after some key policies. I would be surprised if the basic income is one of them. Mm -hmm. I, I think they have some other stuff, the green agendas, you know, they've been talking about that. And I think there's a lot of reporters running around Ottawa right now trying to figure out what is their priority. But if I'm trying to read the tea leaves of the prime minister's comments, I don't think he's hugely enthusiastic about this. And I think it's just one of those policies that I'm sure if you handed him easily costable, easy, affordable, politically winnable basic income, he I'm sure would be in favor of it. But I don't think we're quite there yet. When you look at some of the drawbacks to a UBI and, and looking at how CERB has been viewed by some people in this country, one of the main criticisms I hear is that it becomes a disincentive to work. During the pandemic, you've had people who have had jobs shut down, but then don't want to go back to their jobs when the jobs are back because, hey, I can get $2,000 from the government for being at home and I don't have to send my kids to daycare and take money out of my take-home income that I would have to do if I had a job. And I see critics trying to apply that same logic to a universal basic income. Is it equally comparable or are there gradients of how a UBI would work? Yeah, it is actually hard to figure that out. I wrote a piece saying that there's research out there showing that it is a disincentive to work when you give people money. And then, you know, I got a deluge of emails telling me, look at this, look at that. And, you know, I spoke to the economist, Mike Moffat, who's a University of Western Ontario prof. And he actually was one of the architects of the Liberals child benefit policy, which is kind of their flagship policy, which is, it's not a universal basic income, but in some ways it is for parents. It's just cash to parents every month. And they've been bumping that up. And it's one of the policies they're most proud of. Moffitt is an interesting guy to talk to on this because he made the point to me that when you listen to proponents of the UBI, they will sometimes make two points and they are contradictory. So the one is that there are some jobs out there that people might not prefer to be working. And if you are a parent and you're working a job that you hate for money that barely covers daycare, maybe you would prefer to be at home with your kids. I mean, that's not an unreasonable thing to want to do. Mm -hmm. I know paying daycare that it can take up a lot of one spouse's salary. So we have seen some polling to that effect that there are a chunk of people who, if you had a UBI that covered a certain amount of expenses, they would prefer to stay home. And parents are more inclined to do that. As a parent, that's understandable to me. There are some people who say that that is exactly why we should have a UBI, because it gives people that choice. The other one is that this is what Erskine Smith said to me, which is that he just doesn't think that people will be content to live on $17,000 a year and, you know, play Xbox. Like that's kind of the stereotype <laughs> that conservatives bring up when they're against a UBI. But when you think about it, that might not be a desirable life, like maybe for six months. But I think we're all kind of realizing in this lockdown that being stuck at home is much more hellish than we imagined. So you can kind of see both sides of that. There are studies that show behavior based on the UBI, but they are kind of tricky because so for example, the Ontario pilot, people were self-selecting for that. So 
if you joined the Ontario UBI program, you got a chunk of money as the UBI, but you also had to give up certain benefits. Mm -hmm. So if you were giving up your disability benefits to get this UBI, depending on how much you needed those benefits, you might be coming off worse off, or it might just not be all that much better for you to be getting the UBI. And then the policy almost becomes redundant at that point. But the other part of that is that people were deciding if they wanted to be part of the pilot or not. So people who it would obviously hurt just weren't going to sign up. So we're really not getting a proper sample size. And if you apply that to the whole population and say to all these people who chose not to sign up because it would make them worse off, that now they have to do it, we might get a different result in terms of the behavior based on this program. So there is a paper too out of Quebec that was commissioned by the government on behavior based on a UBI, and they did find some severe disincentives to work. And the issue with the UBI in that case is that it relies on government revenues to fund it. So even on the margins, even if, say, 5% of people drop out of the labor force or working hours declines by 10%, these are just hypothetical numbers, but that will all have an effect on government revenue. And when you're talking about large numbers and a large population, it can be a very large effect. The Quebec paper estimated somewhere between, at the beginning, $400 million in reduced revenue for the government that could add up to $2 billion in reduced revenue. Mm -hmm. Just because people are working fewer hours, they're not paying tax dollars on those hours, they're no longer working anymore. So you have this sort of dual problem where you're paying people who aren't working, but as they work less, you are getting less revenue. So there's kind of a seesaw that just keeps on going there. What would the cost be of a universal basic income for Canada? If you take the Ontario pilot program and then apply it to Canada, the total overall cost would be $76 billion. And that would be per year. And then if you take the net cost, so you take out the savings that you would save on those benefits that you wouldn't be paying anymore, mm -hmm. that brings the cost down to $44 billion. So all of that assumes that the design of the program in the pilot in Ontario was correct. Mike Moffat, the economist I spoke to, would make, I think, a very strong argument that it wasn't correct and that it was hurting people who were losing those benefits. You just never know where politically we would end up with a nationwide program. There are some advocates. The economist Evelyn Forget has said that there's duplicate programs run by the provinces too. And she estimates that you could bring the net cost of a UBI program down to $24 billion per year. But I'm a little bit skeptical of that because that would require the federal government to negotiate with the provinces to reduce benefits. And it's hard to imagine why they would do that or how these negotiations would go. The feds are the ones spending the money. I don't think the provinces are necessarily going to pony up unless there's something in it for them. Mm -hmm. So it would definitely be a fractious negotiation. If I were to guess, I would say somewhere between 24 and 44 or $50 billion. Is this viewed as the best solution for dealing with poverty? Could we find other examples like a childcare benefit or something along those lines to help working parents to be able to go earn an income? This is you know, one of those things where you will hear a lot of different opinions on it. And I actually spoke to some liberals and some of the policy architects and actually a minister or two about this. And they see the child benefit and some of the other programs that go along with that, that they've been kind of beefing up over their time in power. It's not a UBI, but it is some kind of a surgical UBI for certain people and people who are working and it's still in lower income, they've beefed up money for them. And then the child benefit is a big whack of money. If you're not earning a lot of income, you can 
get over $500 per kid on the child benefit. And I think for most people on kind of middle-class incomes, it's still a pretty good chunk of cash each month. And the people who are proponents of UBI, the point they make, which I think is worth considering, is that when it's universal and it's a certain amount of money that happens every month, there's a reliability there. And then you get some kind of stability just because you can rely on it. And that's kind of the point that they make is that all these programs that are trying to surgically get people who need it, it's a great idea, but you never know how much you're going to get. You never know if you qualify. There's bureaucratic stuff you have to deal with to get it. You have to fill in forms. And for most of us, we were talking about the tax system being a headache. These systems are all headaches too for everyone. And I think that may actually be the best argument for a UBI is the simplicity. And in the 70s and in the late 60s, it gained a lot of popularity. The the negative income tax or the UBI was big with kind of libertarian economists. And their argument was this can greatly reduce bureaucracy in the government because we're just going to give people checks. We're not going to worry about what your situation is, if you're disabled, if you're a parent, if you're on low income. We don't care. We're just going to give you a chunk of money and it'll come every month, and there won't be an army of bureaucrats worrying about that. So that argument, there is some kind of bipartisan agreement that that is a good thing to have. But when you talk to economists, especially those who are familiar with the tax system, I think they see a lot of different ways to do that. You talk about MPs to the left, maybe to the left of the prime minister, bringing this to the fore in caucus. Could the Liberals be facing pressure from the NDP? And is Jagmeet Singh looking for concessions like this in the throne speech, which is coming up or in the budget next year? It's a really interesting thing, actually, is that I don't hear a lot of this coming from the NDP. And actually, when I was looking into who was in favor of this and who's against it, you can see some people who are poverty fighters who are a little bit skeptical of it also. And I think it's exactly because of that reason that people on the right like it, is that they worry that this is a kind of a Trojan horse for cutting essential programs. And I think they worry that once it's in place, then you're just giving sort of this pathway to cuts on everything else. And the NDP, one of the things that was a big part of their platform in the election campaign was a wealth tax. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge chunk of money. And I think what they were talking about was not so much about a UBI, but we are looking to pharmacare, to dental care, mental health care, all of these programs that are going to be extremely expensive, but also more and more expensive as our population gets older. I think that's what they're looking towards. I don't think this is sort of like a motion they've passed, but it's kind of the sense when you talk to people who are more on the left or who are more engaged in these kind of policy fighting battles or poverty fighting battles, it is that they want to attack this problem directly. And as far as it goes, the NDP is the party that can prop up the liberals. So they do have a certain amount of power, and I don't hear a lot of talk about UBI coming from them. All right. Well, Stuart, fascinating discussion, and we'll see how the vote goes with the Liberals at their convention this November. Thanks for your time. Great. Thanks for having me. 10-3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Stuart Thompson. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.